You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, The Parables of Jesus, a look at the stories Jesus told and what they mean for us today. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Happy Mother's Day. We're really glad you're here. Um, You know, mothers, that's something that we all have in common. We all had a mother. Um, And, uh, you know, moms are such a big part of who we become. And so, moms, today we want to honor you. We want to let you know that we love you and we care about you and we really value your role in our lives. Please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. On Sunday mornings, we are going through a series right now in which we're looking at Jesus' parables, the parables that Jesus spoke. One-third of all of the teaching that Jesus did that's recorded for us in the Bible is in the form of parables, which are short stories and illustrations which Jesus used to teach important spiritual truths and principles. And each week, we're looking at one or two of these parables and we're considering what they mean for us and for how we live today. So let's go ahead and begin by reading our text this morning and then we will break it down and think about what this means for us. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. By the way, if you need a Bible, go ahead and put your hand in the air. We'll make sure one of our ushers gets you one so you can follow along. Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text, and we thank you for what it means for us. Lord, we thank you for the joy that you find in people turning to you. And Lord, that's what we want to do this morning. We want to turn our hearts and our attention to you. And we ask that you would speak to us, and Lord, we pray that you'd give us ears to hear and minds to understand what you're speaking to us, but Lord, we also ask that you would help us to put these things into practice in our lives, and that we wouldn't just be hearers, but we'd be doers. So Lord, we ask that uh, you give us insight this morning, that you'd speak to us, and that we would hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are a person who has ever gone astray, we use the word prodigal sometimes, or maybe you have a loved one who is wayward or prodigal. Maybe some of you have a a prodigal child of your own, or maybe you were a prodigal child at some point in your life. Maybe somebody dragged you here this morning, and you still are actually a prodigal child, right? But you're here. We're glad you're here. Maybe you're a person who has never, though, been a prodigal. Maybe you say, no, that wasn't me, just the opposite. I was a rule keeper. I was a teacher's pet. I was a parent's dream. I've never gone astray. I've always done what was expected of me. I've been the model child and the model citizen. Well, if any of those are true of you, which I'm, I'm guessing that kind of covers all of us, then there's a message for you in this text this morning. I, I hope you're ready for it. The title of today's message is Lost and Found. In Luke chapter 15, we have three parables, one right after the other. Uh, some of the most famous parables that Jesus ever told, the parable of the lost sheep, 
the parable of the lost coin, we just read those two. And then right after these comes what has been called the greatest short story ever told, parable of the prodigal son. Now together, these three parables are really one message. They communicate one message. And that message is about the love of God towards wayward people. A few months ago, uh, Brian Bame led us in a great study of the parable of the prodigal son. So this morning, my focus is going to be, we are going to look at all three because really you can't look at one without looking at all three together because they all go together. But my focus, our focus, is going to be primarily on the first two. And here are the three aspects that we're going to be looking at that we're going to be primarily focusing on in these parables. Number one, we're going to talk about the sheep. Secondly, we're going to talk about the search. And thirdly, we're going to talk about the shepherd. So the sheep, the search, and the shepherd. Let's first talk about the sheep. You know, one of the things that's really different between uh, Europe, some of you might have known, I lived in Europe for 10 years, um, moved there when I was 19, moved back here a few years ago and became a pastor of this church. Uh, one of the things that's really different about Colorado compared to Europe is that when you go into rural areas in Colorado, it's pretty common to see cows and horses out in the fields. But in Europe, you know what you see a lot of out in the fields, not cows and horses, you see a lot of sheep, right? So I used to go mountain biking in Hungary and everywhere I would mountain bike, It'd be herds of sheep, and I'd ride through them, and, and it, was, it was kind of fun. You know, you could kind of chase them a little bit. And uh, if you've ever been to England, I, I'm sure you know that as soon as you leave a city in England, you get out into the countryside, you see these idyllic scenes of, you know, flocks of sheep. I've actually got a photo here from you. Uh, our, our projector's going out. We're going to have this thing replaced by next Sunday. But that would be a picture of... Uh, some sheep in a field. And, and really, this is what the English countryside looks like everywhere. It's very common in Europe to see sheep. Uh, we were just in England last November, and I took my kids to see Stonehenge, right? Like, it's a pretty big deal. Go to England, see Stonehenge. And so we had to walk there because we didn't want to pay. Uh, sorry, but we didn't want to pay, so we had to walk. There's like a mile and a half walk to get to Stonehenge. You got to walk through all these fields, right? So anyway, we get to Stonehenge, and you know what my kids' response is, of course? Oh, uh, cool rocks, right? And then they said, oh, hey, look, some sheep. And they spent the next half an hour chasing sheep. They had been complaining about the walk. It was a mile and a half to walk to Stonehenge. But then they spent a half an hour running around chasing sheep. It was really the highlight of their trip, right? They don't care at all about, uh, you know, Buckingham Palace, Stonehenge, whatever. But there were these sheep and they got to chase them around. That was really the highlight of their time there. Okay, so the Bible refers to us as sheep very many times and God as our shepherd. We read things like Psalm 23 that says, the Lord is my shepherd. We read Psalm 100 that says, know that the Lord is God. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. In the Gospel of John, chapter 10, Jesus goes on this long sermon which he talks about how he is the good shepherd and we are his sheep. And now, you know, when you and I hear that, it tends to fill us with warm, fuzzy feelings, right? Like we think of little fluffy lambs, and we, give them a, we want, just want to give them a big hug, and we think, oh, he's the shepherd, and I'm his sheep. That's super sweet and so nice, and it just fills me with warm fuzzies all over, right? Get goosebumps and all that. But you know what's funny? So when I was pastoring in Hungary, again, people would tell me how offensive they found this, right? The fact that God says, you are the sheep, and I am the shepherd, they said, that's incredibly offensive, because you see, in the Hungarian language, to call someone a sheep is really an insult, right? It's, a, it's basically to call them an idiot, to say that they're a moron, that they're a dull-witted, mindless person. And so when they read this, that God says that they're the sheep and he's the shepherd, they were like, whoa, that's kind of offensive, right? 
Um, because, right, they have sheep there. They know what sheep are like. They know how sheep act. And when they think of sheep, they don't think warm, fuzzy feelings. They think, well, they taste good and they make clothes. But beyond that, I mean, they're dumb as rocks, right? Like, they're about as sharp as a basketball. And uh, they, they have, like, the IQ of a stick, right? And, uh, and uh, actually, and here's what I want to tell you, these Hungarians are actually closer to the truth of what the Bible is telling us when it calls us sheep than what we think when we think, oh, warm, fuzzy, picks me up on his shoulders, he loves me, you know, I'm his little lamb. They're actually closer to the truth of what the Bible's telling us, right? When the Bible calls him the great shepherd and calls us sheep, it's really a well-meant but very important spiritual insult. Now, let me explain this to you. There's a man named Philip Keller. Okay, Philip Keller. He wrote a very famous book because he's a pastor. But before he was a pastor, he worked for eight years as a farmhand on a sheep ranch, right? So he was, he was a shepherd, basically. And for years as a shepherd, and then, then he became a pastor. You know, he's studying the Bible and he's reading all this stuff about sheep. And he reads it with different eyes than you and I tend to if we haven't been around sheep, right? So he wrote this book. It's a very famous, uh, well-known book. You can check it out. I've got a link for you if you're reading the, the mobile notes. I've got a link for you in there to the book. It's called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. So A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And I've got a quote for you here about what he says about the nature of sheep. Check this out. He says, A sheep is a stupid animal. It loses its direction continually in a way that a cat or a dog never does. And even when you find a lost sheep, it's incredibly hard to round them up unless you have a dog to scare them. Because the lost sheep will, will dash to and fro when you try to grab it, and it will run away from you. And, and the lost sheep, so it runs away from you, and it will never follow you. And so when you find it, you must seize that sheep, you must cast it on the ground and tie its legs together, and then you put it over your shoulders and carry it home. That's the only way to save a lost sheep. See, here's the thing about sheep. On the one hand, they have a natural tendency to stray and to run away from the shepherd. On the other hand, they are absolutely dependent on the shepherd for everything. And so do you know what God's saying here when he says, I'm the shepherd and you're the sheep? Uh, why doesn't he say, I'm the dog trainer and you're the dog? Why doesn't he say, I'm the horse trainer and you're the horse? Well, here's why. Because sheep need a shepherd in a way that a dog doesn't need a dog trainer, in a way that a horse doesn't need a horse trainer. Sheep need, they're dependent on the shepherd. See, because a horse without a horse trainer goes wild, but a sheep without a shepherd dies. There's never been, in the history of the world, there's never been a herd of wild sheep, right? Like you never see them just wandering around. A horse without a horse trainer goes wild. A dog without a dog trainer goes wild, but a sheep without a shepherd dies. See, sheep are, are unusually defenseless animals, and they are completely dependent on the shepherd for everything. They're dependent for protection on the shepherd. They're, they're not even good at running away. They, they get all lost and then just run into each other. I mean, they're really, you know, they're not, they have no defenses. They're dependent on the shepherd for food and sustenance to show them where's the food at, right? And that's why the worst thing, the worst thing a sheep can do is to run away from the shepherd. But that's what they do constantly, you see what I'm saying? This is what it means that we're the sheep and he's the shepherd. The worst thing a sheep can do is run away from a shepherd. But that's why they do constantly. And God's saying, you know, guys, this is kind of a picture of you. Okay, so that's why we have verses that actually say this very thing. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have gone our own way. 
In Psalm 119, the writer says, I have wandered away like a lost sheep. Come and search for me and find me. And what that means is that like sheep, we have a tendency to go astray and we need to be rescued. That's what it means that he's a shepherd and we're the sheep. It means that we need to be rescued and he's the one who rescues us. One of the things about sheep is that when sheep see grass, no matter where this grass is located, they'll just go towards it. No matter how steep uh, of an area it's in, no matter how dangerous of a spot it might be in. And it's not uncommon for sheep to just be walking along or to see some uh, grass down there and they'll just fall down a cliff or they'll fall off of something or, or they'll get stuck in a spot that they can't get out of and, and they'll get hurt and they have to be rescued. Now when a shepherd goes after a lost sheep, here's the thing, the sheep doesn't meet the shepherd halfway. He say, oh well, you know, you come this far, I'll, I'll meet you halfway or I'll, I'll just follow you home. Right? Remember what that shepherd said in that quote. When you locate the lost sheep, your job's not done. Your job's just getting started because when that sheep sees you coming for him, he's going to dart this way and that and try to get away from you. And when you get him, you're going to have to throw him on the ground, tie his legs together and put him over your shoulders and carry him home. And so we see this here in this, this picture, you know. Oh, what a sweet picture. The shepherd's carrying the sheep on his shoulders. He loves him. Well, yeah, but remember, the reason he's carrying him on his shoulders is because he had to wrestle him to the ground and hog tie him, right? Okay, because the sheep kept wandering off. So sheep have to be rescued, that's number one. And in order to save a sheep, the shepherd does everything. It's the shepherd who seeks out and finds the sheep. It's the shepherd who takes hold of the sheep. It's the shepherd who carries the sheep and brings it home. And what this is telling us about ourselves is that we all need to be rescued by God. And the way that he rescues us and saves us is purely by his grace. It's not anything that we do. It's not us meeting him halfway. It's not us trying as hard as we can to find him. It's about God seeking and finding us and rescuing us and carrying us. See, salvation is not something that you do for yourself. Salvation is a work that God does in your life on your behalf as a gift of his grace. See, the gospel, it means good news. The gospel is the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for you to save you because he loves you. So much so that when you were wayward, when you are wayward, he sought you, he seeks you, he seeks you out to rescue you and he is the one who puts you on his shoulders and he carries you all the way until you finally get to where he's taking you. And so what does this mean for us? What does it mean to be a Christian? A lot of people would say, well, you know, to be a Christian, well, that, that means, right, that you try very hard to live up to the standards of the Bible. You try very hard to live like Jesus taught. But this picture of the sheep and the shepherd tells us, no, to be a Christian means this. To be a Christian means to belong to the shepherd, the shepherd who loves you, who saves you, who carries you. And because of this love and because of this grace that he shows you and that he has shown you because he saves you and carries you, you can't help but trust him. You can't help but love him in response. And you begin to follow him because you learn that he cares about you and he's gonna lead you to green pastures. He's gonna lead you beside still waters and his rod and his staff, they comfort you because with the rod, he protects you and with the staff, he brings you back. He grabs you around the neck, right? And brings you back when you start to wander off. That's what the whole sheep thing is about. Now let's talk about the search. The search. This is such a big part of this passage. There's three parables here. Each of them deals with something that's lost and someone going on a search to find it. 
In order to understand these parables, you have to understand why Jesus told them. I think that's, a, that's for true of a lot of the parables. A lot of the reason why people have a hard time understanding them is because they don't look at the context in which they were spoken. Because you see, most of the time when Jesus was speaking in parables, he was speaking in response to something. So what is Jesus responding to here as he tells this parable? Well, we see the context for it in the first two verses of chapter 15, which say this. The tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law grumbled or murmured, complained, saying, this man receives, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Many of the people who were coming to listen to Jesus were in this category of sinners, kind of just an umbrella term for people who were various kinds of outcasts in that society. Some of them were moral outcasts because of things that they had done. We read about prostitutes and, and other people who came to Jesus, moral outcasts. We read about people who were uh, social outcasts, like the tax collectors, very much despised in that culture because they collaborated with the occupying Roman forces. Then we read about uh, there were racial outcasts that also Jesus talked to, and people were surprised. Even his own disciples were surprised that he talked to these people who were racial outcasts, the Samaritans being a prime example. And so they kind of all fell under this broad category of sinners, persona non grata, people who are not welcome. In those days, in that culture, even more than today, people were very selective about who they would share meals with because to share a meal with someone was not only a very intimate thing in that culture, but it was basically to, to eat a meal with someone was to say, I want to be associated with you. I want to be in community with you. And so you can imagine when the religious people of Jesus' time saw him being friendly toward these people who they considered persona non grata, right? Like people not welcome, people who are on the outside. They saw Jesus being friendly towards tax collectors and sinners and they thought, how can this guy call himself a man of God and associate himself with these kinds of people? I mean, how can, he, how can he want to be in community with people like that? These people were ostracized by the rabbinic Judaism of Jesus' day. In fact, there are some rabbinic writings from Jesus' time which instruct people, instruct the rabbis that they are forbidden to even teach these people about the word of God. They're forbidden to even tell, teach them about God. I mean, imagine that. They were considered unworthy of it. So imagine this. A tax collector or a sinner comes up to a rabbi and says, Rabbi, I, I want to learn about God. I want to know what God's word says. You know, I I'm, I'm interested and I I'm thinking, you know, maybe, maybe God's working on me and I I'm interested in knowing more. And the rabbi would say, sorry, I'm not going to teach you. You're unworthy of it. Maybe if you get your life and, you know, get your act together, clean up your life, then maybe you can come back and then maybe we can have a conversation about this again. But as it stands, no, you are unworthy to hear the word of God and to learn about God. And that's why people flock to Jesus, these people in particular, because rather than sending them away, Jesus would welcome them and he would teach them and he taught them gladly. He treated them with love and with kindness. I mean, imagine really people coming and wanting to learn about God and hear God's word and the religious leaders would send them away. They would tell them, no, you're not worthy of it. Go clean up your act first and then come back and maybe we can talk about teaching you about God and his word. I don't know if you've ever been fishing. When I was a kid, my dad used to take me fishing all the time and uh, we would go trout fishing here in Colorado and I really like catching fish. 
And I even like cooking the fish. That was easy. You know, we do the thing with the foil, put the butter inside. I don't know if you've ever done that. Super easy. You don't have to be very smart to do it. And, uh, but the one thing I hated about fishing is I hated cleaning the fish. It's the worst part, right? It's guts and all kinds of gross stuff in there. and Get your hands all dirty. And I used to think, you know, if only I could catch a fish that was already clean, that would really be the best. But you know what's weird? In all my years of fishing, I have never caught a fish that was already cleaned before I caught it. Odd, right? Uh, that's because they don't exist. See, Jesus understood that. He understood. You can't clean a fish till you catch a fish. But the religious leaders clearly didn't get that. And so when Jesus saw these people coming, wanting to learn about God, he said, awesome. How remarkable. They want to know about God. How could I ever say no to that? How could I ever turn them away? You know, I remember when I was a, I was a brand new pastor. And uh, we were just starting church. And um, we had... This couple who started coming to church, this was back in Hungary, and they started attending. And this couple, they weren't married, and uh, they were living together. And the guy was an atheist, and the girl was, she was interested in learning about God, but she wouldn't even called herself a Christian yet. They were just interested, and they came to our Bible study. They wanted to learn the Bible. They liked what we were doing. The guy, I think, came, he wanted to know about the Bible primarily uh, from a historical perspective, like kind of detached, like, okay, this is what Christians believe. And now I know. And, um, and he came also because his girlfriend dragged him along because she was genuinely interested. And so as a brand new pastor, I wasn't sure what to do about this. I, I knew that they were living together. They weren't married. And I knew what the Bible says about it. So I went to this pastor's meeting um, for pastors in, in Hungary. And so I was really looking for some advice. I was looking for someone to tell me uh, what I should do in this situation. And, and so I brought it up with some of the guys. And the advice I got was this. You got to kick them out kick him right out of there. Excommunicate him today because you got to cleanse the church of God. You got to keep the church pure. I mean, you can't be having any of that kind of stuff going on. You should tell them they can't come anymore until they get their lives together. Tell them to go on, go, go out there, get their act together, and then maybe they can come back and then they can, they can attend your, your Bible study, your church. And I thought, man, but wait a second, I'm not sure that's the right thing to do because these people, I don't even, they're not even Christians, right? And they're coming to this Bible study because they want to learn about God. How could I send them away? You know, they're coming and they're hearing the gospel. Where else are they going to hear the gospel? This is the one message that has the power to change their hearts and transform their lives. And if I send them away, what am I telling them? You know, and if I tell them to get their act together and then maybe they can come and learn about God, isn't that actually the opposite of the gospel? I mean, isn't the gospel that God comes into our lives as we are, and then he comes in and he transforms us from the inside out. It's not that we change from the outside and then we get to come to him. No, it's that he gives us a new heart, and then he causes all of our outward actions to change as a result of the inward change which has happened, that we become a new person because of the gospel. I mean, it's one thing if someone says they're a Christian, but they live as a total hypocrite. But these people don't even claim to be Christians. They just want to come and learn the Bible. How could I send them away? You know, they're just coming. They want to know about Jesus. So in the end, I didn't take that advice, and I didn't kick these people out. And here's what happened. Within a few months, this couple, both of them went from being interested in Jesus to being committed to Jesus, to putting their faith and their trust in Jesus and what he did for them on the cross and through the resurrection. And they, they came to this realization. And, you know, we, we talked about it, but they they did come to this realization, hey, the way we're living, this isn't good. We gotta, we gotta get our lives right, you know, and they, we gotta get married. So they got married. And then after they got married, they got baptized. I baptized them. And then a few years later, you know, I dedicated their, 
their child. I, I, they started hosting a, a home Bible study, which we call, we call them community groups here at Whitefields. And then about six years later, that guy, the atheist who everybody told me to kick out of church, he was ordained as a pastor. And every week now he teaches the word of God and he ministers to people and he preaches the gospel. Let me tell you this, man, I'm really glad I didn't kick these people out of church, right? These people who came wanting to learn about Jesus. Because here's the thing. The message of the gospel is not go clean up your life and then maybe God will accept you. The message of the gospel is come to Jesus as you are right now and he will begin to transform you by his grace. So the context of these three parables we have here is that the religious leaders were upset because Jesus was being, in their opinion, too friendly, too open, too welcoming, too kind to these people who they were in the practice of shunning and shaming. Now the first parable is about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. At one point he notices one of his sheep is missing. He must have been in the habit of counting them, I guess. And he leaves the 99 to go out on a quest to seek and to save this one lost sheep. Now, let me just say this. Going by the numbers, if we're, from a business perspective, profit and loss, uh, this doesn't really make much business sense, does it? I mean, losing 1% of your inventory is a bummer. But you wouldn't risk 99% of your inventory to go after the one who has the tendency to wander anyway. I mean, if that sheep's going to make bad decisions... Well, I mean, he probably deserves whatever's going to happen to him, right? And that's exactly the point of this parable, that God doesn't think that way. That God is radically committed to each and every individual. He doesn't say, oh, well, you know, I've got plenty of other sheep. I've got 99 other ones. I'll be fine. They'll make more. He doesn't say, oh, oh, I hope the, the sheep gets what he deserves for that naughty sheep for wandering off. I hope he gets what he deserves. No, he says, God's saying he, he is willing to leave everything. And seek the one who is lost. Here's what Jesus is doing with these parables. He is shattering, shattering the assumptions that people have about how God feels and thinks about wayward people. See, the religious people of Jesus' day, and many people in our day as well, they, they assumed that the way God feels towards wayward people, you know, wayward sheep, is that he's annoyed with them. He's angry at them, and he kind of, kind of passively, aggressively wishes for them to get what they deserve and for bad things to befall them. But Jesus is saying that is not how God feels about wayward people. Rather, he's full of love and full of compassion for them. He sees them as lost sheep who naively think that they're going to be just fine out there on their own. And, but in reality, they're going to get themselves hurt or worse. And he will do whatever it takes to seek them and to save them. Now, the second parable what does that tell us about how God sees wayward people? He sees them like a lost coin, an item of great value, as a treasure which he cares deeply about and which he won't give up on. He will actively seek it out and he will take possession of it once again. And that message would have been absolutely mind-blowing to these rabbis and the religious people of Jesus' day because what they taught and what they thought was that when it comes to wayward people, God is annoyed, he's angry, and he's passive-aggressive. He's standing there with his arms folded saying, all right, a bunch of sinners, I'll be here when you decide to change your minds. You know where to find me. But Jesus is saying, no. He doesn't say, you know where to find me. He doesn't wait passively, idly for them to come find him. No, he goes out himself. He seeks, he pursues. The message of the gospel is this, that God loves you and treasures you so much that he left everything in order to seek you and save you. He left heaven. He traded a throne 
for a cross. He traded a crown of glory for a crown. I'm sorry. Yeah, he traded a crown of glory for a crown of thorns. That's what I want to say. For you, for your sake. According to some scholars, there was a saying that was popular among the religious people of Jesus' day. And that was this. That there is rejoicing in heaven over every sinner who is obliterated before God. In contrast to that, check out what Jesus says. I tell you, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In both of these parables, what happens when the person finds what they're looking for is that there's rejoicing. There's great rejoicing. And here's what Jesus is saying to these people. He's saying, look at this. People are coming and they're wanting to hear God's word and their lives are being changed. And, and you know what? All of heaven rejoices over this. He goes, you guys, you guys should be ecstatic about this too. You should be ecstatic over even just one person turning to God. But here are scores of people turning to me and yet you're not happy about it. Why? Because you consider these people your enemies and you kind of secretly wish bad upon them. But listen, that's not how God feels. That's not how God feels towards wayward people. He loves them. He seeks them. And all of heaven rejoices when they turn to him. Now this was not some new teaching, by the way. It's not like uh, God was... You know, in the Old Testament, that was kind of God's younger years when he was a little bit angrier and easily set off. And then Jesus came around and he kind of chilled out. No, this is the consistent teaching of God throughout the Bible. Let me read you some passages from Ezekiel 18, which say it very clearly. In Ezekiel 18, God says, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord? Do I not rather wish that they would turn from their ways and live? And then he says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone declares the Lord God. So turn and live. You see what he's saying? Here's what I want you to take away from this. Look at these parables and see what they tell you about yourself. They tell you this. You are precious to God. You matter to him. And when he looks at you, he isn't indifferent about you. He didn't just stand by idly and say, well, you know, I did my part. Now the ball's in your court. No, instead he sought you out. He came to rescue you and he carries you, and he rejoices over you because he loves you. If we love him, it's because he loved us first. That's what the Bible says. He is the God who seeks, and he calls us to be part of that mission of seeking out those who are wayward so they can know his love. How exactly does that work? What, is, how does that, what does that even mean that God seeks people? Well, Jesus explained it to his disciples. In John chapter 16, Gospel of John, as they're having the Last Supper, Jesus is explaining to his disciples what is, how God's going to seek out lost people. And he says, that, he says, here's how it's going to work. The Spirit of God is in the world, and he's actively working, convicting people of three things, sin, righteousness and judgment it's kind of like what we call your conscience it's that but it's more than that see it's that inner conviction that every person has about right and wrong and knowing deep down innately that there is a God and we're accountable to him and that things in this world aren't as they should be and we ourselves are not even what we should be and therefore we need a redeemer see God is at work in the world by his spirit among all people every nation every language whether it's that person in some strange nation halfway across the world or whether it's maybe you have older kids of your own who are starting to make their own decisions and you wonder where are they at with God or maybe you have that relative who you've always been talking to and you just don't know where they're at with God. Remember this, God is at work in their life. He's at work in the world by his spirit. He is seeking, he is pursuing, he's going after them and working on their hearts and their minds. Maybe that's some of you here today 
Uh, you know exactly what I'm talking about because that's what God's doing in your life. God's been coming after you and calling you to come to him and trust in him and rely on him. And you know it. And maybe you've been trying to ignore it, but you know it's true. I remember that was true in my own life. I remember that I could sense that God was pulling me and seeking me and I tried to resist at first. I was like that sheep who thinks that he doesn't need a shepherd. But it was when I really understood what he had done for me, how much he loved me, that I, I stopped running from this shepherd and I let him hog tie me and put me on his shoulders and carry me home. And you see, that, that brings us to the third and final thing that we want to consider in these parables, and that's the shepherd. Why should you follow this shepherd? Why? Jesus tells us why. He says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd, and he laid down his life for you. That's why you should follow him. See, this final parable is the parable of the prodigal son. Some of you might be familiar with it. It's the story of a man who had two sons. The younger son decided to sever his ties with the family. And, but before he leaves, he, he has the audacity to ask his father to give him his share of the inheritance. That's something that you get when your father dies. And he's saying, Dad, I want my inheritance now. He kind of does some rough calculations. I can see the house is worth uh, 400000 This farm here is worth, uh, I don't know, 500000 So I'd like half of that. You can just cash me out right now, and then I'll never see you again. I'm going to be gone. Basically what he's saying is, I don't love you. I don't want to have a relationship with you. The only thing I want from you is your money. Surprisingly, the parents oblige. I mean, you can imagine most parents would be like, no way, get out of here. But they oblige. They give him this chunk of money. And and this younger son, he takes it and he goes off and he blows it in a short amount of time, right? It's like going to Vegas and living like a king until you run out of money. And that's what he did. He spent everything on on alcohol and women and, and parties until he had nothing left. And the only job he could get was feeding slop to pigs. And it's particularly humiliating if you're a Jewish person who believes that pigs are unclean. And he's so hungry at one point that he's tempted to eat the pig slop himself. It's a picture of rock bottom, if you've ever been there. And at that point, he has this moment of clarity. And he's like, he can now see what he's done. He can see how foolish he's been. He can see how much he's hurt those around him. And he decides, you know what? I'm going to swallow my pride. I'm going to go home and I'm going to ask my father to hire me just as a servant because I'm sure that he's angry and I'm sure that he's completely disowned me as his son. But if even if he would just treat me like a complete stranger, if he would show me the, the kindness that he shows to strangers and hire me as a servant, well, that would be better than this. But much to his surprise, his father isn't angry. The father's been waiting every day, watching down the road, waiting, to hoping that he'll see his son coming down the road. And when he sees him coming down the road, what does the father do? He runs from the front door of the house. He runs to meet him on the road and he embraces him and he invites everybody he knows to come and he has a huge party. And when the son, his son asks, well, dad, can I be your servant? The dad says, what are you talking about? Don't be silly. You're my son. I'm glad you've come home. And Jesus is saying that is how God feels about wayward people and prodigals. But, but here's the thing I want to show you. Remember each of these parables about someone seeking something. But that father didn't actually seek that son, did he? I mean, he kind of looked down the road and he kind of ran down the road, but he wasn't actually seeking him. So how is this parable about seeking something? Well, here's why. Um, if you stop there, which is where most people stop when they read this parable, you actually miss the main point of the parable. See, Jesus is kind of coming. He's setting them up. And he's about to drop something on him that's going to hit him like a ton of bricks. It's totally unexpected. It's a surprise ending. Check it out. 
While this party's going on with the younger son, the father notices that the older son, remember he had two sons, the older son is outside brooding and angry because his moron little brother just went out and acted like an idiot and now he's getting rewarded for it? Where's, where's his party? Where's the older brother's party? I mean, here, he's been faithful. He shows up for work every day. He does exactly what the father asks him to do, never complains. And here he is. Where's his party? And the parable ends like this. The younger son is inside the house with the party. The older son is outside by himself with his back turned to the father. And here's what I want you to see. Who is the father seeking in this parable? He's not seeking the younger son. He's seeking the older son, isn't he? He's seeking, but he's seeking the older son. Remember, each of these parables is about someone searching and seeking after pursuing something that is lost. But in this parable, who's the one who is lost? It's the older son, the moral son, the one who had moral superiority over everybody else, the one who was the rule keeper and the rule follower. Do you see? It's a surprise ending. It's a massive twist. It's when you see it, it hits you like a ton of bricks. You're like, wait a second. What is he saying? What he's saying is this. Jesus is talking about how God loves people who are wayward and lost. And they thought, and we tend to think, that he's talking about, you know, those people. The meth addicts, the criminals, the deviants. Surely not about us. I mean, we're decent people who have jobs and, and you know, pay our bills and stuff. And now they realize, wait a second, he's actually talking about us. He's saying that we are lost. He's saying that God is seeking after us and God wants us to repent and turn back to him. Well, how can that be? We're the good guys, right? Well, we're not like that, that moron little brother who goes out and blows all the money in Vegas and, and does dumb stuff. We do all the right stuff. We're responsible. We keep the rules. We, how can you say that we've gone away from God? But Jesus is saying this. There's more than one way to be a wayward sheep. There's more than one way to be a wayward sheep. See, it's not just what you do outwardly. It's not just the flashy, obvious stuff. There are plenty of people who are very moral and upstanding, and they do all the right stuff outwardly. But in their hearts, they've gone away from God. In their hearts, their backs are turned to the Father, and they're outside of the party, brooding and angry. They become self-righteous. They become bitter. And just because they don't have the ugly, outward, obvious sins that other people do, it doesn't mean that they aren't just as distant from God in their hearts. And Jesus is telling those people and us, look, whether you're the younger brother or whether you're the older brother, there's more than one way to be a wayward sheep. But here's the good news. Whether you're the younger brother or whether you're the older brother, God loves you very much. He treasures you and he seeks you and pursues you, to calls you to himself. He doesn't want to be separated from you. And so he, the great shepherd, did something incredible. The great shepherd became one of us. He became a lamb. And he laid down his life to save us. This parable ends without telling us that, the conclusion. Did the brother respond to the father's pursuit? Did he turn around and embrace the father and go back into the party? Doesn't tell us, and here's why. Because the question is now posed to you. The father's pursuing you. Will you respond to him? Will you follow this shepherd? He's the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He loves you. He treasures you. He seeks you. He saves you. And he carries you. And I encourage you today, consider that. And in response, love him and follow him. Amen?
Oh Jesus, we thank you that you are the good shepherd who lays down your life for the sheep. Lord, we thank you that you have laid down your life for us. May we never take that lightly. May we see in that the fact that you pursue us, the fact that you draw us. And Lord, may, may we respond to that. May we embrace you. Thank you for your love and grace. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. Thank you that you are the God who seeks us and saves us and carries us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.